So there's a question that's been asked by Christians over the last uh, 2,000 years, uh, and it's a question that we're going to deal with today, and it's, it's should I obey the government? Uh, should I obey the government that I'm under? Now, it's easy here in the United States of America to obey our government. I mean that relatively easy, right? We have um, a, a beautiful system of, uh, of representation. We're a, what, a, a democratic republic, right? You can go and you can um, vote for people to represent our interest in um, the state legislature, city councils, uh, United States Congress. We, we have power to select to our uh, supreme executive is and the president, right? We have all of this influence. And so it's easier for me as an American citizen um, to obey my government because I, I get a say in what the government looks like. And if I don't like the government, right, I can write a letter to Bill Flores, who's the congressman uh, for this area. And I can say, hey, Bill, actually, I went to church uh, with Bill Flores back in the day. That's so like back in Sugarland, uh, And so I can call him, hey, Bill, he won't know who I am. Um, but if I talk enough, he might be able to put me back together. But hey, Bill, I don't really like what you're doing up there. Why don't you actually do something, right? And that's generally our complaint with Congress. Anyways, why don't y'all just do something um, instead of nothing? Uh, and so I could write him, a, I could write him a, a nicely worded email or letter, and I could get a response uh, ostensibly from him um, saying, yeah, sure, I'll work on it or whatever, right? And I have the ability to, to petition my government to make changes. And if they don't, then I can organize people and we can go vote them all out of office and we can start again. It's easier to obey this government. But the question is, should we obey the government? Regardless of the government that we're in, if we were in um, communist China right, right now, which is a fairly restrictive place to be a Christian. Um, I don't know if y'all been reading in the news what's going on with uh, Christians and house churches across China, um, but this is the most serious crackdown on non-state churches uh, since the uh, communist revolution. It is absolutely um, terrible what, what good Christian brothers and sisters in China are going through this very day. Uh, fear of their lives, fear of being swept up. And um, once you get picked up in China, you can just disappear. China's a pretty big place and they've got a lot of people and they'll, they'll send you to a, a re-education camp or they'll just disappear you somewhere. Um, and you, you'll never be seen or heard from again. And so there's churches where their entire leadership has been picked up in a weekend. Um, and people have shown up to go to where the, they would gather. And there's no leadership there. And there's a member from the, the Chinese party, the Communist Party, who says, Hey, guys, um, if any of you are professing this, then, then you get to go with them. It's a serious place. And so the question is, do you obey the government? Where is our obedience supposed to lie in situations where the government isn't? Representative, where the government isn't flexible to the wills, uh, the will of the people. What what do we do in that situation? And that's where Jesus is in Mark chapter twelve. We you have your Bibles open up to the book of Mark chapter twelve. We've been going through the book of Mark, uh, really literally all year long, um, and we're we're to Mark chapter twelve. So if you have your Bible, open up to Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to start uh, down in verse thirteen. And so what's been going on with Jesus is he's. Uh, made it to Jerusalem, which is the capital of that area of, of, of the Jewish nation. And it's the capital of that region of Judea where Rome is in control. And he goes into the temple, which is the center point for worship for all the Jewish people. And he looks around and he says, this place isn't right. And so he turns over tables and runs out money changers. And he really does a number on the religious establishment that's going on in the temple. And so Jesus was... Um, fairly despised by everyone who wanted power. 
If you wanted power, Jesus was a barrier to that because wherever he went, people flocked to him. And they surrounded him and they listened to him. And if they're listening to him, that means they're not listening to you. And so he was an object of scorn for all the religious elites of the day. And so Jesus is there and he's in the temple and he's already just told this parable against um, the scribes and the Pharisees and the people who are leaders of, the, of that area saying one day uh, God's going to kick all of you guys out of here and he's going to establish something new because you guys are wicked. And he's just told this and they're seeking a way to destroy him. And so they get together and two groups come together and say, you know what, we've got a plan. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13. I'll read the story and then we'll talk about it. It says this, starting in verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. And they... Um, that's the religious elite, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him um, one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, uh, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, so the story is a story maybe you've heard before, maybe not. But Jesus is there, and you have two groups that come. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. And these are people like, if you're not... Uh, really into first century Jewish uh, power structures don't mean a lot to you, right? So the Pharisees, if we were going to go on like modern day equivalent, is the far right of the religious establishment, okay? So they're the most conservative, legalistic um, people inside of Judaism. And then the Herodians are the far left, of it, So they're the people who would um, be most for uh, the, the, the power of the government expanding and least about um, the power of the Jewish nation. And so basically what the reason they're called Herodians is they had an alliance with the king who was Herod. And Herod kind of ruled that region. And so they were loyal to the king first, loyal to Jewish uh, kind of understanding of God second. And the Pharisees saw that as a grave, grave uh, miscalculation, that you should be loyal to, to, to what God says first, and then uh, loyal to anything else maybe after that, if at all. And so these two groups, which hated each other, right? Imagine Republicans and Democrats, or uh, we're, we're stuck in this 24-hour news cycle where Republicans and Democrats, uh, it's very difficult to find them saying anything nice about the other side, right? It's very difficult for them to look across and say, like, hey, not all of these people are terrible human beings, right? On either side, they really struggle with just being human beings with, with the other side of it. And this is going on back then. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees would never be seen together. They were never on the same side of any issue, right? If, if the Pharisees said, this is our position, the Herodians would take the opposite position, even if it didn't make any sense to them, right? And vice versa, if the Herodians said, this is what we believe, The Pharisees, to maintain their power block, would say, well, we believe the exact opposite. And they fought with each other constantly, and they debated with each other constantly over who was right, trying to build their little groups to follow after them. But these two groups come together, and they say, hey, we have this argument that we've been having, uh, and we know you can settle this argument. And so they come to Jesus. The first thing is, guys, when you're dealing with a situation, and you have two people who hate each other greatly, 
and then they're coming to you, be, beware of odd alliances, right? Just, just if there's like an odd alliance that's going on, you should be a little bit leery of that, right? Like if I showed up uh, to, to something with uh, my mortal enemy, and I don't know who my mortal enemy is right now, but uh, I don't know, Jonathan Ritchie, sure. Uh, <laughs> No, no, but if I showed up with someone who you knew that I had a great deal of, of disdain for, uh, and I said, hey, we're working together on this thing, you should be skeptical, right? You should be skeptical. If I showed up and I was like, hey, I've got the Buddhist monk with me, and we're going to talk to you about the ways of God, right? Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, because I'm kind of on one side of the Buddhism versus Baptist, like, continuum. Like, I'm pretty, pretty firmly in one camp. That's why I stand here uh, every week, right? You should be a little leery of that situation for both of us. Right, well, what, what are these guys trying to do? So Jesus has these two weird groups walk up, so his, his radar's already up because he's not an idiot. He's like, this is not a normal situation to have these two guys. And then they start flattering him, right? And people do this, right? Like, well, you are, you are so smart, and you're so intelligent. You can do things so well, right? And when they're doing that, right, they're either trying to manipulate you to get what they want, or they're trying to lower your guard. Uh, my wife has a friend who is really lazy, um, some of you are like, is it me? Is it me? I'm not going to say it's you, okay? Um, but this is, this is how she, she'll go to my wife. My wife is skilled at a lot of things, and she works hard at a lot of things to do things well. Um, but, but her friend will be like, you are so good at X, and I'm just not that good at it. And what she's doing is she's saying, will you do this thing for me? Right, but she starts out with like, "You are just so talented and so good, and so, I can't do that at all. Oh, I wish my kids could have that. Oh, that would be so great." Right? She she just praises my wife, and then all of a sudden, my wife finds herself at you know 11 p.m. decorating a cake, and I'm like, "Why are we decorating a cake for this random kid?" And she's like, "Oh, I told him I would do it." Right? Because because that person you know bagged him or whatever, and she felt like she felt the praise. It affected her, and then she, she ruined my night, right? Because cake decorating is, uh, is a way to ruin the pastor's night. So, um, <laughs> but, but, but flattery is a way to get what you want. And so they come to Jesus, and they start flattering him. The, the truth is, these two groups hated Jesus. They hated him for different reasons, uh, really the same reason. He was a, a, an obstacle to what they wanted, um, but for different perspectives on it. But they hated him. They were, they've been seeking to destroy him. Literally, if you were to go back to like chapter 2 or 3, these are the same two groups who when Jesus talked to them last time, they left there seeking a way to destroy him. That's what it says. Like They're looking for a way to kill him. Um, and this has been 10 chapters ago now in the book of Mark, which is a, you know, about a year or so. And so like they, they hate him. They don't like him. They don't have good things to say about him. It's like if you really didn't like me, I hope you like me, but it's like if you didn't like me at all, and you're like, man, he's the worst preacher this church has ever had. And there's a whole lot of them. I mean, there's a wall full of preachers out there, right? Like, this is the worst preacher we've ever had. But then you come into my office, and you're like, man, Pastor, you're so good and wonderful. And then at the end of it, you're going to ask me for something, right? Like, can we please stop with the drums in church? Or whatever it is, right? You're going you're gonna to come with whatever it is your issue at the end and kind of sneak in whatever that thing is. Right? I try to see through that. Jesus is, is better than I am. He sees right through it. These two groups come to him, they're praising him like, oh, you don't care about what people think. You just do the right thing and you teach right and you're this great authority. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think you guys have my best interest. And then they ask him the question. And the question is, is made in a way that it's an either or question, right? And so you give either or options to people and you want them to select one of two things. You can do A 
or you can do B. Uh, I've given choices to my kids like this before, like you can clean your room or you can be grounded and clean your room, right? You, uh, because I've been told to give my kids options, right? And so you can do A or you can do B. And they never think like there's a C option, like I cannot clean my room. I hope they don't think that. Um, they, they act like they think that sometimes, though. Huh. All right, no, that's not going to hear that. But they give them an either or option. They say, look, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And the issue there is not, what, what, what's this deal with Caesar? Caesar was a, a, a figure set up in Rome, leader of the whole empire. But he had a whole like, cult of worship that followed him. And so like, the coin itself was kind of blasphemous. It would say like Caesar, uh, the, the, the great Caesar, and, and kind of uh, imply that he's a god. And then the back of it talked about how his mother was the high priest to Caesar. Right? And so it's a, kind of a blasphemous coin anyways. And they're like, hey, do we pay taxes to this guy who set himself up as a god? What are we supposed to do? Right? Do we pay or do we not? And Jesus, who is not easily trapped by people's stupid plans, right? And this is something you need to learn, right? Sometimes we try to box God in. I know I do this sometimes. I'm like, we're going we're gonna to kind of cut you off the path here, God, and we're going to do it my way ultimately. Right? God is not easily boxed into your plan. What you want God to do, he's, he's not yours. I think about uh, in, in the Narnia series, right? And you have um, someone's going to meet Aslan, which is the great lion, which is representative of God. And uh, they ask, is he tame? Is he safe? And he's a lion, right? Is he safe? And uh, the, 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 the Narnia resident there says, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, right? Like he's a lion. That's what he is. He's, he's, he's fierce. He says, but he's good. He's good. Right? He's not safe. God's not safe. And some of us, we, we, we like to keep God in our safety zone where he'll, he'll only affect the things that we want him to affect. The truth is, God isn't safe. God will wreck your life, but he's good. And that means that your plans might get wrecked, but there's a better plan on the other side of it. We need to trust that he's good. And so they go to Jesus. They have this trap set. They feel like they've got him in it. And that word trap they use is literally like, like what we would use to to trap a mouse or something like that. Like it's a, a trap that, that, that ultimately leads to the death of the animal. And so they think they've got Jesus trapped in this box because if he says, don't pay taxes, right? If I was to preach today in this room and there's a video camera running and audio going and I said, hey guys, the United States of America is a corrupt government. Don't pay taxes. And I convinced you guys not to pay your taxes I would receive a visit from someone relatively soon, right? And our government, like I said, is fairly nice to people. But they would come to me and they'd say, you know what, you can't really tell people not to pay their taxes. And if I continue down that path, I would find myself in jail somewhere for some sort of speech. I don't even know what the problem would be. But for some reason, the United States government would get angry if I told you all not to pay your taxes, right? So in that day and age, if Jesus stands up and says, don't pay taxes, he's not far from a Roman governor, a guy named Pilate, who's going to execute him in just a couple days anyways. Um, But he's not far from that guy. And if he starts yelling, taxes are wicked, don't pay them, and he has a group of people, and it's like a little mob scene there, the, the Roman guards who are guarding the temple area to keep it safe and secure will arrest him, toss him in jail, uh, and ultimately execute him for insurrection. That will be the end of Jesus' story. He'll be an insurrectionist, killed by Rome, uh, for this. And so if he says that, which some people would want him to say, the Pharisees, that's their side of the issue. Don't pay taxes because Rome's corrupt. Right? If he says that, he can go to jail. But if he says pay taxes, he's basically saying it's okay 
to participate in idolatrous worship of Caesar. It's okay to worship Caesar by, by paying taxes to him. And so it's kind of a tricky spot he's in. And so he asked them for a coin. It's interesting he doesn't have a coin, right? It's possible that Jesus was so poor that he didn't have any money on him. The coin he got was just a little silver coin. It's the only coin you could use to pay this specific tax. It was a poll tax. Um, and it, and it was a, just, a, just a silver little coin. It's basically what you got for every day work you did. So if you worked a day, you got one of those coins. You could sell it for whatever a day's wages would buy you back in the day. So it's basically one day's wage. And so we get someone to come, and they bring him a coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? And on the coin was stamped a picture of, of, of the Caesar of the day, um, Augustus Caesar. And so they had a picture of him in there, and it was stamped in the, in the little silver or whatever the metal was that it was. And they said, here, here, here it is. Who is it? And, of course, that's a pretty simple question. So it was Caesar's uh, image. That's Caesar's inscription. And Jesus says, and there you go. You give to Caesar the things that are his. This is his coin. It's got his inscription on it. It's got his picture on it. Like, it's his coin. You give to Caesar what's to Caesar's, but you give to God what's God. And this second part of this is pretty important, guys. Right, it's not just you render to Caesar that which is Caesar. It's not just that you obey the government in the areas where the government has authority. It's that you need to recognize that you have a special image printed on you. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, way, way, way back there, right? God makes man and he makes woman and he makes them in his image. Unlike the animals and the oceans and the mountains and the rivers and the birds and the bees and all the other things, Flowers and the trees and a little thing called love. I don't know. Uh, aside from all of those things, right, man and woman have a very specific thing about us. And it's called, uh, it's called the image of God. Or it says he made us in his image, male and female. He made us in his image. And so when Jesus says, whose image is on this coin, they're like, well, that's Caesar's image on the coin. He's like, great, we'll give it back to him. But everything else where you are, you bear the image of God and you render that back to God. Guys, the question is, do we obey the government? Or do we obey the government? What's, what's our response to the government? And the answer is, is explained kind of throughout the rest of the New Testament as well. The answer is basically, yes, mostly, we should obey the government. Right? We obey the government where the government has authority. Where God has put authority on the government... We're to obey the government. We're supposed to live peaceably as citizens of the world that God has put us in. Right? That means that we should not be um, out there constantly like starting fires and burning down places like insurrections. Like we're supposed to live at peace with those who God has put around us. We're supposed to be peacemakers. We're also supposed to recognize that the authorities that are above us, whether we like them or not, are ordained by God. Right, so like I don't, I don't know your opinion of Donald Trump. I have mixed opinions depending on the day and what he says. Right, so like um, I don't know what your opinion is of Donald Trump. I don't know what your opinion is of uh, Greg Abbott. I don't know what your opinion is of John King. That's our current mayor here in Rock Hill. I don't want to be wrong about that. Right? I don't know what your opinion is of all those executives that we have, or your congressmen, or the people that are around um, that have governmental authority placed on them. But it doesn't really matter. Right, we're still in a position to pray for these people. Uh, and to honor them. So whether you love Donald Trump now, or you, you hate Donald Trump now, whether you loved our previous President Barack Obama, or you hated our previous President Barack Obama, none of your personal opinions about that person really matter, right, when it comes down to what your responsibility is to them. 
right? Well, you can vote against their politics. You can try everything you can to get them out of office. You can, you can work that system, right? And we're called to do that. We're supposed to be participants in the government gives us that gift. Please take it, right? But regardless of where your politics are, the person, the people who God has put in power over us, we should pray for them, right? And we should obey them as far as we're able to obey them. Is there a spot for civil disobedience? I remember reading, uh, what is that, uh, Thoreau's Civil Disobedience. And it's a, yes, yeah, it's good, good, good bedtime reading. Um, there is a spot for civil disobedience for the Christian. We see it with, uh, was it uh, John, James and, James and John, right? They get arrested in the book of Acts. Uh, and they're, they're put in jail. Uh, and then they're like, hey, you guys stop talking about Jesus. This is the religious leaders. Like, we're going to let you go. You stop talking about Jesus. If you'll just shut up about Jesus, we're all going to be good. And they leave there, and they say to the guys before they leave, they say, look, whether you think it's right for us to obey God or to obey you, it doesn't really matter. But we can't help speaking about that which we have seen and taken a part of. Like, so we're going to keep talking about Jesus because Jesus is important to us. So where the government mandates that you cannot fulfill the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations, the government is living in a way that, 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 that is wrong. Right? And so we disobey that. But also, if you engage in civil disobedience, wherever you draw that line at, you need to recognize there are consequences for that. Right? In China right now, if you go and you do street evangelism, you'll be picked up, put in jail. If you're a foreigner, you might, you might get extradited out of there and sent back home if you're fortunate. Or you might just sit around in a prison indefinitely. But if you're going to stand on a street corner in China and civilly disobey their requirements against proselytizing. Like, God bless you. I think that there's a, a call for Christians to, to be bold and do that. But the consequences that you're inviting, like, they're real. And you need to recognize the government will, will hold you responsible, and we need to accept those consequences on this side because God's picture is bigger than the short-term image we have here. So, like, it can cost you to be civilly disobedient, but that, like, disobeying the government is far, far down the road. We should do everything we can within the realm that the government has given us to change the systems that we have. If you're unhappy with the politics that are going down uh, in this country where God has, has blessed you to live, go and change them. Right? It starts here in this little community that we're in in Rockdale, Texas. Right? Go talk to your East Ward or West Ward representative. Right? Start here. Right? Local politics, right? And if, if you don't get the changes, the changes can't be made that you need, then take the step up to the state level. Right? And if that doesn't work, you move up to the national level. But we have an opportunity here. We're, we're, it's, it's a beautiful thing, right? Like that, that America gives us the chance to, to change, to, to, to govern ourselves, and to change things that, that we don't find to be agreeable. And so as the church, we have an opportunity to respond in that. But guys, we should obey the government in all things where the government has authority and power. That means come April 15th when they say you've got to pay 33% of your income uh, back to them, then you scratch the check. I mean, you do everything you can. You talk to Lauren, see if she can get that reduced somehow uh, inside of the laws that they have. But you obey the law. That's there. You don't hide it. You don't, you don't lie. You don't, you, don't, you don't bury it in your mattress somewhere and hope they don't come knocking. Eventually, they'll knock on your door anyway. You obey them. You give to them what's theirs. The money's theirs. They print it. It's theirs, right? We, we, don't, we don't possess it. We're, we're giving it. You give it back to them because they, they, it's their money. 
but everything else in your life you give to God. And what that means is like your time, which is the, the greatest gift that we have, right? It's limited resources. I only have, I don't know how many, how many days I've got left. It's kind of morbid to think like that, but like I don't have that much more time. I, I've lived 37 years. Maybe I'll live to be 75. Maybe I'll live to be 95. But like my life is slowly moving towards whatever the back half of it's going to be. Some of you are firmly in the back half of your life. You only have X number of years or days or weeks or months. Those days you need to render to God. God has placed his image on you. You need to live those days for for, for the image maker. Right, that means that you honor God in your body and you honor God with your time. You know, I ask y'all to read God's Word because I think it's the most powerful thing that you can do. Every day, take some time and read God's Word. Let God transform you into His image because He speaks through this thing right here. Right, make that a part of your... Like, if, if I only have you know, five years left in my life, I, I would really want to be seen seeking God's face for those years. That's where I would like to be found, seeking after what God wants for me. And then have meaningful conversations with those people that God's put in your life. If you have children, what a wonderful blessing children are sometimes, right? (laughs) But if you have children, take the opportunity to share about the goodness of God, that God made this world good and then we broke it. Like the reason that there's problems in this world, the reason that families are messed up, the reason that that there's a drug addiction problem across our whole county, the reason for all the issues that we struggle with, that we try to keep our kids away from, man, that's sin. It's sin, and sin separates us from a loving God, and every single person fights it. From the preacher, to the person in the pew, to the person who's living on the street, who's down on their luck and having a hard time. We all fight that battle of sin. Sin is the things that we think, we say, we do that break God's law, right? That, that God says, don't do this thing, yet our hearts say, I want to do that thing. The Apostle Paul, a holy, righteous person, struggled with sin. Sometimes we think that, oh, well, he wrote half the New Testament. He must have had this thing figured out. He didn't have it figured out. He's like, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Guys, that's me, right? The things that I know I should be doing, I'm too lazy to do. And the things that I know I shouldn't be doing, I wake up and I see myself doing those exact same things. Guys, how, how messed up are we? And we can't fix it. I try to tell you this a lot. Like the, the solution to the problem of sin is not you. You're the problem. Like if I try to fix myself, I'm just going to break it more. I liken it to my cars, right? My, my wife can break a car. You want your car broken, let her drive it for a month. But, right, like, when, when, she, when she brings me her broken car, right, I get in there and I mess with it, and, and, and I'm not a mechanic, right? Like, I, I know how to use YouTube, and I know how to use a wrench, but I'm not a mechanic. And so if Billy doesn't come and bail me out, That car is going to be all sorts of buzzed up. New things will be broken because my brokenness got on it. And that's what we do. We try to fix ourselves. And then when we recognize we can't fix ourselves, we go to someone else and we hope that that person can fix us. Some of us look for that in our marriages, right? We say, man, maybe my spouse, right, like I'm 18 years into this thing, right? Maybe they'll fix me. And your spouse should make you a better person, but your spouse can't fix you. They're messed up. You messed them up partially. Right, but they're messed up. Maybe my kids can fix me, or my brothers, or my sisters, or my preacher. God, oh, guys, I, I, I can't fix you. 
I can't. You're busted up, and I'm busted up. Sin breaks us all, and we think, sometimes we think, we can solve it. And we get on that treadmill of do good, be good, do good, be good, stop doing bad, do the good thing, do the good thing. You never make any progress. You never get closer to God. You just stay on the trouble. You don't go anywhere. So what do you do when you recognize your sin separates you from God and nothing you can do can fix it? That's when you cry out to God and say, God, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I need you. And that God, the same God who, who, who made the universe at a word, the same God who created people in his image to be uh, perfect representations of, of part of who he is, that same God can fix your problem. Right? Because he's not messed up. And he's not broken. That's what Jesus did. Right? He came to earth. He lived a perfect life because you can't do it. Right? You can't do it. You haven't been perfect to, up to this point today. And you know what? If we were to pull the curtain back for a week and we come back next week, you're probably going to have a rough week this week. We're honest here. Probably going to have some issues this week. We're probably going to struggle with our temper at some point this week. We're probably going to struggle with our language at some point this week. We're probably going to struggle with putting ourselves as our God this week instead of God as our God this week. We're probably going to be pretty selfish this week. Those things that we do, right? we can't fix it, but Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life. 33 years till, till the day of his crucifixion, right? Not one thing wrong, not one sin, not one cross word, not one dishonoring moment for his mother or his father. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And so when he died, right, which we celebrate on Good Friday, which we're going to read about in, like, I don't know, a few weeks, um, we'll get to the crucifixion. But when he died, he didn't die because of his sin. He didn't die because he was messed up. He didn't die because he was broken. He died because he chose to take your sin, right? The consequences of sin is death. That's what the book of Romans tells us. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Jesus died because of you. He died because of me, and he took our punishment on him. I tell kids at VBS this, and I, and I love the picture, right? But, but imagine you owed Bill Gates a billion dollars, right? And I don't know what you did to get in deep with Bill Gates where you owe him a billion dollars. It was a bad move, okay? But you owe Bill Gates a, a billion dollars, and he's sending the guys to break your legs because you're not paying. Apparently, he's a hitman mob boss, too, on the side. And so you get the knock on the door from the guys coming to collect their billion dollars, and I don't know y'all's bank accounts. By the way, if you've got the billion in your bank account, if you make up the difference on our annual budget, I'd really appreciate it, okay? Um, but, 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 you know, you probably don't have a billion sitting there to pay off old Billy Gates, and so... And so, so he sends his goons in there to extract a billion dollars worth of punishment off you. And then imagine Jeff Bezos is standing beside, I don't know, what, why are you hanging out with these guys, right? Amazon guy. And he's like, how much do you owe Bill? He's like, a billion dollars. And he's like, okay. And Jeff Bezos gets out his checkbook. And he writes, you know, if Jeff Bezos writes a check for a billion dollars, it's good. That's crazy to me, by the way, that he can do that. But he writes a billion dollar check. It's good. And he can give it to Bill Gates and he can pay your debt. You could never pay that debt. You can live the rest of your life Working like a dog, you'll never make that money. But it can be paid in an instant by someone who has that money on them. And in that moment, if you accept the gift that Jeff Bezos is giving on your behalf to Bill Gates, you are free of all your debt. You don't owe anyone anything anymore because someone else paid it. But you can 
look at Jeff Bezos and say, hey, shut up, Jeff. This is my debt. Get out of the way. I'm going to take, take the punishment for this. And then you'll get your knees broken, right? And then they'll come back the next day and they'll break your thumbs. And it's really a terrible mom movie going on in your life, right? So you're just a battered up, beat up old person. You can't do anything, right? But if you accept the gift, if you accept the gift, there's no punishment for you. And your debt's been paid. And that's what Jesus did. He took your punishment. He paid your debt so you don't have to take the punishment and so your debt has been paid. And you can stand before God and you can be fully right because your debt is fully paid. You don't owe anything else. He's paid it in full. Some of us, we live our lives and we're not willing to let God do that. We're too proud to let God do that, to let Jesus pay our debt. And we think, man, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going I'm to I'm strive more. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, whatever. I'm going to help with Feed Rockdale popping popcorn today. And then maybe, maybe I'll earn a little bit more and pay off a little bit of that debt. But we can't ever do it. But that's what Jesus did. He, ta- he takes bad news that we're, we're lost in sin, and he turns it into good news, and he says, look, I've paid it. All you have to do is trust me. Guys, you need to trust Jesus Christ to do that today. I'm, I'm asking you to live your life, to render to God the things that's his Something y'all need to start by rendering your life to him, though. To giving your life back to the God who gave it to you. Who made you in his image and made you like him. And he says, look, I, all I ask for you is that you'll believe in me. And when you do that, I'll take care of the rest. You won't be right today. But I got saved when I was 15 years old. I, wasn't, I was made righteous before God, but I wasn't right. I'm still, today, I'm 37, still messed up. I still struggle with things day by day. I still, I'm still a crooked stick. But God is working on me still. But in that moment when I was 15, when I cried out to Jesus, said, God, forgive me of my sins. I trust what Jesus did. I was made righteous in that moment. My sin is no longer held against me. Jesus paid the price. That's, that's, Jesus paid it all, right? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a deadly stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. It's what he does. He takes our debt, and he writes it off, and we can stand before God clean and pure today. Some of you need to render your lives to Jesus Christ today for the first time. Others of you live your lives for yourself even as a believer. And you have parts of your life that you give to God because you think this is kind of the, the, the Jesus part of my life. But the rest of it you think is the the you part of your life. But you bear the image of God on you. Everything about you screams out the goodness and glory of God. It's not your life. Render the whole thing to God. Give Him everything that you are. Give Him the entirety of what you are from your checkbook, right, to your time, to your hopes and your dreams. And if you give that to God, if you give the totality of who you are to God, I'll promise you this, he's good to take care of you. And it's a daily trusting. It's tough day by day. For me, it's tough day by day. But God has been good to me as I've trusted him to do what he can do. Should we obey the government? Yeah, we should obey the government. And and as far as the government isn't causing us to sin and isn't causing us to condone sin, we should obey the government. For the rest of our lives, we honor and we obey the one who made us.
King of kings, the Lord of lords, created you in his image because he loves you so much. Let's pray.